Hi, I'm Gio. And I'm Renee. And this is Listen to Me Podcast, where you get all the greatest and unqualified advice from qualified creatives. Basically, we go through it so that you don't have to take a sip from the devil's cup and feel it slowly taking over you. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm glad that you took this one because I was going to say something along the lines of Britney Spears Toxic, so I'm glad we were in the same headspace. I'm so glad that we did not discuss that and that <laughs> took yeah. it in the same direction. Yeah, my my mine was going to be about Britney too, so, you know. <laughs> Amazing. I don't know if that makes us like in sync, no pun intended. Oh my or... god. Yeah, we're <laughs> we're wearing matching head to toe denim outfits right now. Yes. <laughs> Luckily, I think most of our listener base is between the ages of 28 to like 35, so they should get their pop culture reference. How are you doing today before we get into our topic? I'm good. Life is good. It's been wonderful. The new place is furnished. I have all my furniture now. My uh, my aunt and her kids are coming over tomorrow, and oh, they're, nice. they're so excited to come over and see the place because now yeah, they have like course. another place to hang out. Yes, <laughs> that's about it. How about you? <laughs> I'm good. Like I, it's really hot here today. I was telling Gio, and he was gently teasing me for saying that 30 degrees Celsius is warm. For Alberta, it is. Um, yeah, but was, you guys have dry heat. Like We do. I'll yeah, take it over not, the humidity. Oh, for sure. I went out on my porch and I was like sitting in the shade uh, with my hoodie on and I was delighted. It was so nice. I felt so warm. But yeah, otherwise I've been good. I've been writing a lot, which is really nice. And I have not been submitting anything, which is nice. It's really nice to take a break. Yeah, but you need that. Honestly, I if do. you're like pushing too hard, it you don't... It very thankless. Yeah, and then you're not even motivated. You're like, fuck this. Like, what's the point? I think it's like a square peg round hole game a lot of the time where it's like, it's really difficult for me anyway to write to like a specified call for submissions. Mm-hmm. So, and generally the calls for submissions, as I've talked about, are very broad anyway. And I'm just like not what people are into and that's like partly because partly lack of skill on my part but it could also partly just be what's in vogue at the moment or like what's getting traction so the way I look at it though and I've said this to you before it's not what other people are looking for but you you're inadvertently creating your own path you know what I mean Mm -hmm. like and what you're cultivating as far as the experience that you're getting and how you're writing and that will manifest something that's actually meant for you versus the things that you don't fit because it's not for you. Yeah. And it is like a reality check for me to be like, why is it so important for me to get my work published when I do enjoy writing and when I get positive comments on my writing, like it's very gratifying. It's not any different than like seeing my work published in that Mm -hmm. sense like a facebook comment from somebody or like a dm or whatever is like just as nice have you ever had negative feedback i don't think so not that i can think of yeah that's why i'm asking because yeah no no people get so much hate online but i usually think it's 
Like people would. I don't think I'm like known enough to get hate online. But that's to what, be that's what I'm saying. Like that's what I'm saying. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, like nobody knows who I am, which is fine. <laughs> so yeah. I can, I can make a mess in obscurity, so to speak. <laughs> like, I'm, in I'm in the same boat. <laughs> no, I think like you're a little, you're more known than I am for sure, especially no. like in the Windsor community. My name is not big enough for people to start like wanting to tear me down and wanting to hate on me. Yeah, that kind of like does dovetail into our topic today. So That's why I brought it up. Oh, sorry. Yes. <laughs> so we're talking about toxicity in creative spaces today. And this is a topic that was suggested to us by one of our listeners. And then we like kind of sent out a call for people to share their experiences. But kind of unsurprisingly, we didn't get a lot, partly because we're so small. So our reach isn't very, very far. But also I think partly because it can be really like hard to talk talk about toxic experiences because they're very different. They kind of run the gamut from like interpersonal experiences to more systemic issues with the structure of certain creative fields. And then they can be really personal in the sense that like you can fear reprisal from speaking on them, right? So it's, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Especially if you're accusing somebody on a one-to-one basis in a public way of doing something toxic so to speak i don't know that it's as bad here in canada but definitely in the states because it's so litigious you could be pretty handily accused of libel if you say things or if you make claims that aren't substantiated you know what i mean and you could actually Mm -hmm. have like legal action brought against you thankfully i'm not big enough of a name for that (laughs) i don't want that to happen yeah and also like i don't think you or i have ever engaged in using our social media platforms to try to like drag people or call them out in that way i don't understand what people get from acting negatively towards other people yeah it's just never been my my mo So before we kind of like jump headfirst into this topic, I had said to Gio before we started recording that I wanted to really acknowledge, because we're going to talk about some of the systemic issues that inform toxicity in certain creative spheres, spheres, like Miss Spears. (laughs) (laughs) I just have Brittany on the brain. Um, In all seriousness, I just, I wanted to acknowledge that we definitely have a gap in perspective because we are two white people talking Mm -hmm. about uh, toxicity and oftentimes there are things like systemic racism or oppression that show up and kind of uh, dovetail or sort of um, integrate into these subjects. And we don't have, we can't speak to the, that no. perspective or experience of Black people, Indigenous people, or other people of color who have been marginalized by those systems or queer people of color, which is another important intersection that mm-hmm. we need to acknowledge. So I just wanted to make that really clear. Yeah, we're just speaking from our own experiences, mm-hmm. mostly because that's what we know. I <laughs> did some research for this topic and read an article by Harvard Business Review called Four Ways to Deal with a Toxic Coworker that I thought might be, uh, it's by Abby Kerno Chavez. And I thought it might be a good place for us to start off. So there's just a list of common toxic behaviors. So these can include backstabbing, criticizing and blaming, gossiping and spreading rumors, agreeing in meetings or messages, but not following through afterwards, hoarding information, purposely undermining other people, 
or caring only about one's personal agendas. Have you experienced any of those working in the creative sphere? Yeah. The one thing that comes to mind right away is Mm -hmm. I find that other creatives, not all, this is, I'm, I'm generalizing, but I've noticed that there have been certain individuals that I've met at networking events or other social environments where the topic of career or what I do came up. And if we were sort of in the same circles, as far Mm -hmm. as what we did, I've noticed that there's a, there's like clickiness here and there is a, Oh yeah. Like you're on my turf or because you do what I do, you are competition. And there's, it's that, it's that mentality of there's not enough to go around. Yes. Yeah. Or like that everybody does things exactly the same way. So your work is equivalent to my work. Yeah. And I always look at it from this perspective where I don't do what you do. Yeah. We don't do the same thing. No, no matter if we both do are specialized in branding or whatever, I'm not you. I don't see other people, other creatives, other designers as competition. And it's not like an ego thing. Like, Oh, no one's competition to me. It's, there's enough to go around for everybody. I don't, so I've never really, and that to me was always been weird because wouldn't it be better if we opened up to one another and were potentially collaborative? And Mm -hmm. to me, that's, that's how I've always been, but you know, I can't twist somebody's arm into liking me or wanting to work with me. (laughs) No, but I think that speaks to also your business ethos because you don't subscribe to this mentality that all jobs are for you if you just push hard enough or edge out the competition. You were literally just talking about how your mentality is that if things aren't working out despite the effort you put toward them, that likely it's just not for you. Yeah. It's not an opportunity meant for you and you just cut your losses and move on from that and accept that whatever's meant to fall into place for you with a reasonable amount of effort will and you don't have to like sabotage or undermine other people or offer yourself up as an alternative to them at every turn to make your success. No. And I very much believe in karma. I think that what you, what you reap, you know, you sow and is that the same? I'm not sure. Do you mean like the pop culture version of karma? I'm not trying to be like an asshole. I just like genuinely don't know. No, like actual karma, like what, what you put out into the world, you will get back. That concept is like a mishmash of things, but like karma is specific to Hinduism and Buddhism. And it's the sum of a person's action, actions in this and previous states of existence are viewed as deciding their fate in future existences. What you're talking about actually kind of sounds to me like a thing that I learned in witchcraft and Wicca, which is the threefold law, which is that anything that you put out into the universe will come back to you threefold, whether Mm -hmm. that's negative or positive. So there's like immediate repercussions in this lifetime Mm -hmm. for the shit that you you sow, basically. Yeah. 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 You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is helping. You're going way back. I'm just like, uh, yeah. like, you know, like karma. Like <laughs> yeah. don't do bad things and bad yeah, things won't yeah, happen yeah. to you. Well, I want to be like like respectful that that's like an actual like belief system. And yes. it's like the concept has been so diluted by by pop culture, right? But I think I understand what you're saying, which is that mm. you think there's like an immediate repercussion for this stuff that you you do all of the things that you work out. I think that that's actually also a a principle of Hinduism and Buddhism, but I think it's called Dharma. 
In Hinduism, Dharma signifies behaviors that are considered to be in accord with Rata, the order that makes life and universe possible and includes duties, rights, laws, conduct, virtues, and right way of living. So that's more like morals or ethics, I mm -hmm. think. The core of what you're trying to say, I definitely agree with because I think you see those effects immediately or at least within your lifetime. You might not realize what you're laying the foundation for, but all of your actions, I think, do have a cumulative impact at some point down the road. Whether you're paying for it now or paying for it later, it's going to come out in some fashion. And that's why it's so critical to, I mean, yeah, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And like you said, opening up space for collaboration and looking at other people as potential partners or drivers of growth, I guess, rather than competition or people who need to be put down or undercut or undermined. A shining example of that is Christopher Pressey. When, so he is, he's been doing branding and graphic design for forever in the Windsor area. And when I moved back, I met him like pretty soon after I moved back. And I met him through the business accelerator. Yeah. He met me and I started working at the accelerator do like in the shared space. Yeah. You know, here I am this like new face on the scene with a bit of credentials. Like at the time I wasn't as developed as I am now. And he never not once had that attitude of, oh, you're competition. Like, cause you know, it was, I'm already established. Yeah. And I actually love your style, Gio, because it's something that I don't do. Your approach is something that mm -hmm. I, it's not, it's not who I am and I want to work with you. And he's given me jobs that he's, he's like, you know what? I got this job, but it doesn't, it's, you would suit it better. And to me, that is an example of somebody who has mm -hmm. been in the game longer than I have, who's opening up the, that collaborative opportunity. And oh saying, yeah. Come into yeah. my world and let's work together versus, you know, uh, let's be separate entities and say, you stay over there and I, and get the fuck out of my way. You know? Yes. I totally know what you mean because my whole part of this episode and the reading that I did for this was diving into kind of the toxicity that exists in online spaces for writers and the writing mm. community. And while we're on, we can use this as kind of like the light point of this episode, <laughs> <laughs> which is that there are so many people that I've been connected with through the online writing community who are actually amazing and just like that, like a couple people that come to mind right off the bat, like somebody that I know more personally because I follow them on social media is Lizelle Sambury. She's a Toronto young adult author and she is a YouTuber. So she's like an author tuber, I guess is what it's called. And she puts out so many videos about her technique for structuring and for getting her word count down and how she structures her books and how she world builds and all of this stuff. And I remember one time she had a story on Instagram where she was talking about getting 5,000 words down in a day. And I right away DM'd her and was like, that's amazing. And she was like, yeah, I'm using this technique and this is the book that I use. Like right away, she was like sharing her, yeah. her technique. There are so many authors who do that. Uh, Danielle Rawlings is another one. She's a published author. Uh, she wrote The Merciless, I think is her most best known one, but she has a bunch of resources on her website for plot outlining techniques that are just free. She just puts them up. And I think that's huge because it's so uplifting. And it also speaks to the, that mentality of you don't do what I do. 
regardless mm-hmm. of whether you're using my exact techniques, you don't do what I do and you'll never be able to, to duplicate that. And it's funny because somebody that I know who's who hasn't published work, they were always really cagey about sharing their work with me and being like, don't show it to anybody else because these concepts are totally unique and original and I wouldn't want somebody to steal them. And I was like, I think like you, that you're missing the point, which is that even if somebody duplicated the same concept as you, their execution of it would never be like yours, just by virtue of the fact that it's not you writing it. The first time I ever, I was ever like copied, I guess. Yeah. I did an illustration, I don't know if I, I I think you know this, but I did an illustration years ago of the Spice Girls and I drew them as these like fashion illustrations almost. Mm -hmm. And someone online had literally traced the image. And so the shape, it was identical, like the way that they were, but the way they did it was so not how I did it. And so it just looked like, like, okay. It just looked like a, like a bit of a knockoff version. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm trying to say this nicely. It wasn't as polished maybe. E- yeah. It yes. was like season two of Drag Race versus season 12. You know what I mean? Like that kind of vibe. <laughs> My gut reaction was to be upset. Mm-hmm. Like right away I was like, oh, how dare somebody? And then I stopped and was like, well, they copied me. <laughs> oh, okay. Like, and you know what? No, but like, <laughs> and it was instead of, and it wasn't an ego thing. It was more, I took it in a positive way. So I kind of like flipped it almost immediately where I didn't, you know, I didn't let it be a toxic thing for me. It was, yeah, whatever. Let them copy Yes. Me. That's really interesting because it's like, I think so much of toxicity is comes down to these person to person interactions and they're mm-hmm. so dependent on the way that we interpret oh intention God, yeah. and how people's actions impact us right this is not talking about like things like systemic racism and white supremacy that are like very present in publishing right now like there's just mm-hmm. a huge bias towards publishing white authors especially like white dudes as usual they hold the monopoly and there's just like so much stuff like that but I think the interactions that I've had that were negative are usually like person to person and they've been based on my interpretation of like how my interpretation of people's comments. So how they landed with me, Mm -hmm. which there needs to be a level of accountability because I definitely can cop to the fact that I don't always interpret people's intention because I'm not psychic. (laughs) So it's impossible for me to know whether somebody intended a comment to land a certain way. And then what's left is me just dealing with the fallout of the impact of that comment, regardless of what they meant. Right. And that can often be the case with things like that we say as well, because we don't always know how they're going to be interpreted. Right. I get that a lot. Some people the way I speak and my tone, because I'm just enthusiastic and passionate, but people yeah. can take me as like, I'm saying, I'm being like rude. And it's yeah. like, no, like I've had to explain even to my own family. I'm like, I'm not mad. This is just how I speak. <laughs> One volume. Well, <laughs> volume yeah. is loud. I've really made a conscious effort to tone that down yeah. when we record because I want what I say to actually be heard and not interpreted. If yes. that makes sense, you know? Yeah, but it's really hard. And it's interesting that you mentioned that because especially in this medium, I think it's easier to control that at least to some extent because Mm -hmm. it's audio. 
And it's so different online or like when you're having like any text-based conversation, it's very difficult to convey the meaning or the precise inflection that you intend. And I've definitely had comments made to me that I've like gone back and read after and been like, what did they mean by this? Like that upset me. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? I think like, if I can speak to my own experiences of negative or toxic stuff in the writing community, I would say two things come to mind right away. One is this like sort of like related to diversity. There's like a lot of call out culture or canceling culture or dragging culture that kind of runs into like call in culture. So trying to ask people or advocate for people to have better behaviors or open up their perspectives. Mm -hmm. And then there are people who respond to that in like really shitty ways. Like they just don't want it acknowledged that they've done problematic shit or they're like, you know, everything now is like so sensitive and so PC. And I feel like those are like two ends of like the same spectrum almost. Mm -hmm. And then the other one that's like impacted me more directly is people who are, who have like a very puristic attitude toward writing as their craft. And thankfully this is something that I've encountered very minimally, but it's like people who are like, you're not a real writer unless you sacrifice everything to your craft you know what i mean like you (laughs) that's so stupid and it's like that works for some people and to varying degrees i should say right because there's especially here in alberta there is very little funding for the arts which is just bullshit and it's so frustrating that's the creaking of your soapbox Soapbox opening opening? (laughs) (laughs) i think these these are the words that have made an appearance in every single episode of our podcast. Soapbox, dovetail, and girl. <laughs> girl is my preferred gender neutral term. <laughs> sorry, continue. There's no. not a lot of funding. Yeah, sorry. There's not a lot of funding for arts in Alberta. And it really sucks because it does. If you want to make a career in the arts specifically and there. And it's so much work and you know this, right? Because you Mm -hmm. switched from working in a corporate environment to working freelance. It takes so much work to do creative work. It takes so much energy and effort. Yes, I agree. But I can compare it to having, so Alberta, obviously a little different than Ontario, but also the way I look at things like having lived in Toronto and the comparison Mm -hmm. of moving to a smaller city like Windsor, it really doesn't matter where you live like we're finding that more and more especially in 2020 that just because you live in an arts focused city yeah doesn't necessarily mean that there's more opportunity more advancements and funding you know living in Windsor I've actually excelled here than I did in Toronto as an independent yeah because it's just different like you 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 can do whatever you need to do today there are limitations. Everyone has their own individual circumstances. Circumstances, thank you. But with the internet, you can really do anything. That's what I'm finding. It doesn't matter yeah. where you are. You can really make something happen for yourself. Yeah, it just depends on where you're coming at it. Because I'm thinking of people mm-hmm. who are like career artists who, you know, 
who rely heavily on grant funding and other right. sort of initiatives like that. And it can be really hard. But to your point as well, I don't think that this is the case for provincial or federal funding, but if there are local initiatives, they can be easier to access sometimes in smaller communities, even if the opportunities are less. Maybe the competition is also less, but it is really difficult. All I'm saying is that it's really difficult to dedicate yourself to your writing. And I found a lot of support and comfort in knowing that a lot of my peers in the writing community or people that I've connected with are people who are working part-time or full-time jobs, not in writing because they need to live (laughs) and they have to work to live. And we've talked about this before because I think it came up. I said that I really didn't like that expression that was like, Beyonce has 24 hours in a day and (laughs) everybody else does too. And we talked about how socioeconomic status like really impacts what the 24 hours of your day are dedicated to and what they look like. Yeah. And everybody's situation is so different. Like I don't have children. I'm a single man who my focus is myself. So for me, it's a lot easier to advance my career. And I'm very aware of that because, you know, because I, I don't have anyone in my life that I have to think about really other than myself, which I feel like it could make me sound like very me, 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 but it's just, that's just my situation. No. Yeah, it is. And it's something that you've chosen too, right? I mean, it's just like how I can bitch about how I have less time in a day to get my words done or whatever, but I have to be cognizant of the fact, and my husband and I have talked a lot about this, that we, he and I both came from lower economic status families. Mm -hmm. Um, And especially his family went through a lot of financial hardship when he was growing up. So two things that were really important to us, sort of unreasonably so when we were just starting out, was getting out of debt and getting our housing situation sorted because we were terrified of being without a home, like being without a roof over our head and being unable to pay our bills. And we're in a fairly good situation right now, thankfully. Um, He's survived a couple, like (laughs) half a dozen or more rounds of layoffs at this point. But his income has taken a hit, which means that now more than ever, I have no choice. I have to work full time. Mm -hmm. And you know, I say I have no choice, but the choice is that if we want to keep our home, I have to work. Yes, And that is important. And it's worth examining that that's a factor in how much I can get done. And it's not something that I want. I don't think it's helpful or productive, especially if you're part of a same community to be like, yeah, well, you chose, you know, financial security over having a writing career. Like, I think there's room for both. It's just acknowledging that people's priorities are different, I think, in a more supportive way, as opposed to being like, you're not a real artist, or you're somehow not valid or legitimate if you don't do things exactly the way that I think they should be done. You know what I mean? That's the problem with people today, where if one thing goes against them it's almost like oh that's completely wrong it's like you know we're all different you know we all do things differently and that my path is not the same as yours and the way that i walk that path is not going to be as slow or as fast or as side to side you know if you whatever like it's yeah no i completely agree with you and i do think it's worth saying regardless (laughs) 
as I unfold my soapbox again. <laughs> Regardless of whether this makes it into the final cut of the episode or not, but I think it's important to touch on something that we have talked about in another episode, which is the fact that we are making art in a capitalist society. And that means that there are limited spots for people to achieve what they consider mm-hmm. to be success, right? And everybody's vision of success is really different. Just like everybody's vision of, you know, how they make art or how they are an artist is really different. But I do think it creates a scarcity mentality. I was just talking about how me and my husband, because we grew up in a specific way, we were worried about not having enough money when we got older. And that mindset and that fear of going without trickles into everything. And you don't even realize how it impacts your perspective. And I think that many of the creatives who act in these like toxic ways where they're creating these internal pressures for people and being like, these are the standards you have to like adhere to and you don't deserve to achieve a certain level of success if it's not the way that I think you should have achieved it. I think all of those things are based on the fact that we're afraid that there's not enough to go around, which is not the case. I know we, we're in a consumer culture and I know we're in this capitalist culture, but we don't need to be millionaires. You know what I mean? Like no. the reality is that if I could like pay off the mortgage on my duplex from money that I got from writing something that I enjoyed writing, that would be enough <laughs> as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. I don't need to win any regional awards or go down in the annals of history as like a great voice of my time. Like, you know, like <laughs> I literally just did an interview with Lemon Soul Studios on their podcast. Mm-hmm. And the host asked me, how do you want people to remember you? Or how do you want people to, mm-hmm. and to me it was, it literally had, and it was all about my work. Like that was kind of the focus was just geographic and, you know, like my, my career. And for me, I literally said, I want people to remember me on how I made them feel about themselves. Cause to me, yeah. like I like to reflect back to people what I love about them just based on how I interact with them. Not being like, you're amazing. Oh my God. But you know, like, <laughs> like just being enthusiastic. I don't know. Like just being geo, I, I guess. And, yeah. You know, I don't, I don't care. I don't need my name to be Matt, like this big name. I don't need to have mm-hmm. to get to a level where I'm, I don't care about that. I want to be happy and yeah. content in my life. But do you think that that is kind of where that, I think that's where that mindset comes from of like undercutting other people or being like, you're mm. not succeeding or your path isn't the path that is the right path or whatever. Like, I think that mentality comes from like wanting really badly to be validated at the expense yes. of like everybody else. You know what yeah. I mean? Your drive isn't because of ego. Yeah. You know, or in that case, it is. You, you yes. know, you're, you're pushed, you're driven by through ego. For me, it's not that at all. It's, I just want to be able to support myself <laughs> and, yeah. and also just do cool work. Yeah, doing cool work is the best. So that's, um okay, so there are a couple of different things I want to kind of get into. Um, and I want to kind of save the bigger topic for later. So maybe let's talk about a comment that we got I don't know if I should say who it's from, but we did get a comment on our Instagram about favoritism among peers. And I do think that that's a really interesting point because 
it relates to what you were saying about networking and people mm-hmm. who have opportunities to network. You were saying that you're an un- unattached dude with no dependence, basically. Yeah. And you can just go out and network at will and that puts your face in front of people and it instills them with confidence or maybe gives them a little bit of excitement about the prospect of working with you. And then they're, you become like their go-to guy. What do you think about the idea of these closed circles that can kind of result from that where it means that other people are getting passed over because you're there putting yourself in front of people all the time and they know you and then maybe they recommend you to somebody else or you get a referral like you know what I mean that kind of stuff like so what do I think of like what do you think about that I think there's kind of like again maybe a middle road between the idea of favoritism that creates these closed circles that no outsider can penetrate. Mm -hmm. And it's always the same people getting work from the same people and they're not open to anything new because it's just the same, the same, the same. Mm -hmm. But then also it's like, how does that not work to the advantage of people who do get in? Like once you get in, you're perpetuating that. You know what I mean? I recognize that a lot in, in the industry that it does very much happen. I've just never been that way. I've, I'm the person that, because I know so many people Mm -hmm. and like literally today I had a friend of mine who happens to be on a really popular drag competition, reach out to me (laughs) asking, Hey, do you know any local photographers? Yes. And I know plenty of them. And for me it was, okay, who would make the most sense? for you, mm-hmm. not who do I like better or who's my close friend that I'm going to re- recommend. Like I said, there's, I'm not going to refer somebody just because they're my friend that I'm like, that's not a, that I don't see them. They don't do the same thing or they don't, it wouldn't work. I think there's definitely like a fine line there though too, right? Because it becomes a thing of like, if you're only recommending photographers that you know, there's an inherent bias there already. I'm not like calling you out. I'm just saying yeah, yeah. Hard because you know people. And so, but I think there's definitely a difference between being like, I'm going to refer this person who trusts me to give them somebody who will fit with what they're looking for. Mm-hmm. And, and that person is somebody whose work I happen to know. And you being like, well, I really want to work with this one photographer. So it doesn't matter what this person is asking me for when they're saying like, oh, do you have any photographers to recommend? It would just look really good on me if I recommend them to work with this person. And then maybe the photographer will come back and offer me work. Yeah. See, I don't think that way because for me, if I want someone, if I'm going to ask, hey, I'm looking for someone to help me with this. I need someone to fit with me and my work and like the project that's happening, not like based on preference because that, that doesn't, I don't, it's about the work at this point. It's yeah, not about, like nepotism or like no. expanding your visibility or whatever, stuff like that. Do you see what I mean? How easily those two things can kind of become like one. Yeah. <laughs> you know where I'm going with yeah. this, right? <laughs> Why is this like nineties pop hour right now? I don't, I think toxic came out in 2003, but like, that's whatever. true. Okay. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I see the point though, because it is, it works similarly in writing, I think, because so many people who are involved in literary magazines all know each other, right? And I've talked a little bit about before about how you also, when you move through academic programs, cut your teeth on 
workshops or giving critiques or receiving critiques from other people who are also editing magazines. So it does become like a closed Mm -hmm. club almost where it's like, well, I know this person and I know this person's work. And I know that I want to work with this person because I was in a workshop with them and they took critique really well and they made some really good work out of it. But it does make it harder for those people outside the circle to get in. Because what's your point of entry, right? If you're just completely unknown. As much as we want to say, if your work is really good, it will speak for itself. That's just not realistic. That's bullshit. That's absolute bullshit. Because one of the main reasons why I've gotten the work that I've gotten over the years is just through not just networking, but like social interactions. Oh, I know a guy through my social media through my website, like there's been so many entry points, I guess, to, for people to get access to me. And Mm -hmm. it hasn't just been, my work is good. Like that's not even, I don't know, like you can only do so much and then you can't, that whole notion of build it and they will come is not, it doesn't work for when, for growing a career. No, it does boil down to the fact that you're always working with people and there's some level of favoritism inherent in that, right? Because people have to like you enough to work with you and the odds of them coming back to work with you again are higher if they like working with you. And that does run the risk of turning into favoritism. Like they'll turn down other maybe like unknowns based on the fact that they know you, they like your work and they will, they know they work well with you. You know what I mean? Yeah. But a lot of times that, but that will happen because if there's money on the line and there's a timelines or anything like that and they know, okay, this oh, guy yeah. gets, gets the work done quick and it's efficient and good. Yeah. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to have to like troubleshoot a new person. Yes, exactly. They don't want to run the risk, but it's not, we're not saying that it's fair or equitable by yeah, any means. Exactly. I, yeah. I think the only way to run counter to that is maybe to think about checking your own biases and really thinking about if you do, this is like something that we talked about when we had Kelly on the show and we talked about their book, The Conscious Creative, but thinking about when you're in a position where you have more opportunity to take risks and you have more opportunity to use your influence and your clout to make a broader systemic change, challenging the biases that you have and opening yourself up to some things that might be riskier for people who have less, who can't stake their careers on it, or who have less of that flexibility in that sense, in order to enable people to to have opportunities that they wouldn't otherwise. You know what I mean? To break that cycle of like that in-group and that favoritism. I know for a fact that when I get to a point where I don't know if this is even going to happen, I guess this is like my pipe dream, but when I get to a point where I'm, I can hire people to help me with work, I already have a catalog of people that I know locally and not that I can see they're like 10 years younger than me. There's like an artist locally. uh, I think her handle is art dealer chick Mm -hmm. on Instagram. And she's this, artist who illustrates very similar to how I did years ago, but it just, I don't know what, when and where I will utilize this person, but I know I will reach out to them eventually because, (laughs) and this is not the savior mentality. Like, this is not what I'm saying. Like I'm going to help someone's career. It's, I just want to be able to be like- The opportunity to, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I love this person's work. And if I have extra work, I would go to them for a specific project, you know? And I don't know. Cause like, I don't, it's like Chris Pressy, like I was saying earlier. It's an, I don't see it as 
it's just me. I, I want to work with other people and other artists, other creatives. Yeah. And- yeah. Well, I think most creatives appreciate the art within their field as well. Right. So they want to amplify people that they think of as talented or people whose work they're familiar with that they're like, this is good. I don't fit this, but this person would. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Even if I don't know them. Okay, we're going to talk about this. We're potentially opening up a can of worms on this show, but that's what we like. (laughs) If nothing else, to court controversy. We're seeing these conversations and discussions online, especially right now with the Black Lives Matter movement and resurgence and the really fucking terrifying shit that's happening in the States with the protesters and the riots. It seems more critical than ever that we take those steps to take responsibility and accountability for our own anti-racist education and examine our complicity in the system. And there's an aspect of that where you're going to fuck up, right? And somebody is going to either call you out or I've heard the alternative phrasing of call you in, which means trying, I think from what I understand, calling somebody in is trying to get them to understand where they went wrong with a positive intention. It's not to cancel or to censor. It's to be like, you need to examine what you're doing here and some of the harmful shit that you're perpetuating and take a step back from it and course correct. Mm-hmm. And like, this is meant to, to get you to like check in, so <laughs> like, like snap out of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and do my bad share impression. <laughs> but yeah, it's interesting because a lot of these articles talked about people like call out culture, meaning that like you could get canceled at any moment or whatever. And it's like, I think it's good in a way because it levels the playing field. So in a case like this, there were people who came forward and said less of this. Like, I don't want to see white authors retreading these old narratives of white people suddenly realizing that racism has been a thing that they're participating in and is hurting other people. Yeah, you mean like a new, like we need something new, (laughs) like a new story? Yeah, exactly. And we have this industry who is like desperately crying for diverse voices and authors, but like they can't get through because there's so much of this pressure to get it right. And when I think of some of the authors that I've read in, because I read so much, right? I've read some questionable shit from authors that I like, but they've, because call out culture wasn't a thing until just recently with the advent of social media, they've had the opportunity to continue to get better and I think more than ever, we need that for pe- for diverse voices. You know what I mean? That's one thing that I don't understand about cancel culture is there's no room for improvement or growth. It's yeah. it's so black and white. It's either yeah. you you know you did this, therefore you are forever dead to me. But it's that's lifetime not, ban. But yeah. that's not how life is. Like you learn and you grow and you make mistakes. You develop yourself. When I see people wanting to tear someone down for something that is not not getting it right you make a really good point and it that's like the last thing i wanted to say on this is that there's definitely levels to it right because if you're calling somebody out for a lifetime of problematic behavior that's gone unchecked like harvey weinstein or like what's happening right now with jk rowling god forbid 
we even get into that. But do you know what I mean? These are people mm. who are moving through these oppressive structures at the highest, like at the top level, and they're using their influence to reinforce this shit, right? And so calling them out and canceling them and holding them accountable, I do think that it's amazing that social media and the accessibility of information on the internet now has had a hand in trying to create accountability for those people. But that's not the case a lot of the time. There are so many people at the top who are benefiting from these power structures and we're down in the mud squabbling. Do you know what I mean? Over but that's like, how society has been designed. I think that you and I both advocate for coming from a place of compassion mm -hmm. and it can be really hard to do that there are so many factors that get away get in the way of that chief among them being our own egos and mm -hmm. our own unwillingness to kind of admit what our blind spots are or how short-sighted we are trying to bring as much compassion as we can into creative spaces and also just doing that interior work right like especially if you are in a position of privilege based on your race, your gender identity, your sexuality, your socioeconomic status, that kind of stuff. Like, I think it's more important than ever that we do the work of checking our internal biases. Like, try, really trying to be aware of, like, where some of our motivations to criticize other people or to not be supportive come from mm -hmm. and confront those things. Because, like you said, we're all in this together, right? Like we're all minions at the bottom. That's what you said, like all the minions fighting each other. And the only way we're going to make it better is if we like lift each other up. So we actually, it's, it's not like fun or glamorous work to do that. I don't no. think that people say that enough, right? Like it's not like, yeah, positivity and blah, blah, blah. A lot of that work takes place behind the scenes offline. And it's all about like digging into the ugly parts of yourself and being like, I don't want this anymore feigning positivity or trying to, you know, stay positive, be positive. To me, that is a complete disregard for actual emotion and for yeah. processing feelings. And if you're constantly in this, yeah, you just got to like maintain positivity. You got to stay positive. Like that's, that's what's going to change things. No, it's not. You have to face what it is that's in front of you and deal with it, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whether it's internally that, or externally. Not only that, but I've heard, I don't know if this is true, but I definitely know that I've heard a lot about, especially like, again, I don't mean to harp on white people, but I guess I am a white people, so I can. Um, <laughs> I but, am a white people. <laughs> <laughs> like white people use that kind of positivity to reinforce like toxic shit. Like they'll be like, to I don't want to hear criticism. You know, you're just like a negative person and you're bringing a lot of negativity into this space. And it's like, that's bullshit. Like it is such a way, it's a control thing, I think. It's, it's a, a way, way of, to not have to face anything. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. And I always to find not that so frustrating. Examine our own like problematic behaviors. So like, yeah, if you find yourself in a situation where you're being called out, I ideally I would hope that it's done in a way that is like being called in, like where it's done with love or it's done with like intention to help you grow as a person, but you can also try to create that for yourself, like try framing it in that way after you give yourself adequate time to process the emotions, because it is a lot. 
thinking about how you speak to someone too, like receiving words with a certain intention, but also thinking about how you speak to someone that's like huge for me in my marriage too, right? Like it's so easy to misinterpret things and not always understand that some things that sound like criticisms might be coming from a place of caring and love. And sometimes they aren't. So it's like important to be real with yourself when you're like giving a criticism. Is this actually helping the person? <laughs> like, is this motivated by a kind intention or an intention of helping this person grow or calling them in to make your relationship with them better because they maybe inadvertently hurt you in some way? Or are you doing it because you just think they're doing something wrong and you want them to do it the way that you think they should? It's mm -hmm. very important to think about. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. I think we we did it. We're done. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> no. <laughs> Is there right. anything that I railroaded you on that you feel like you didn't get to speak to? Oh, no. no like, I, I'm kidding when I say that, girl. You know that. <laughs> That's the one thing. I, if I can make fun of you of one thing, it's about talking. I know. But it's like, once again, it's with love because... Half the time you articulate things in a way that I never, ever could. So <laughs> I, I hope in some way it's beneficial more than me just like exercising my, my jaw. No, it is in certain cases because you are able to explain concepts much more eloquently than I can. You also just know a lot more than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Only about certain things. I appreciate it. I do think it's important to be able to articulate this kind of stuff. It's very like complicated. There, These are all really complicated concepts. Yeah. And I don't pretend to be the final word on any of them. These are just like my understanding of them. Yeah, I think sometimes I, I like take a step back when we get into these these topics, mostly because I don't necessarily, I don't feel the most like I'm an authority to speak on these things. That's the only way that we're going to grow as people. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is part of what's really fraught about call out culture is that there is this growing fear and anxiety among people to even try to do better because they're afraid that they're going to fuck it up right off the bat, which they likely will, and then get mercilessly roasted for it as opposed to like gently corrected or like encouraged in that way you know what I mean and I struggle with that a little bit I'll be really honest I I understand the frustration that people must feel especially like we were joking about the white person realizes racism has been a thing mm -hmm. and like <laughs> imagine the frustration that like black and brown and indigenous and other people of color must feel at that like it's not even a joke anymore like they're fucking dying and we're over here being like oh i guess i guess we don't live in a post-racial society oh mm -hmm. when did that happen you know what i mean at the end of the day this is a system that we've inherited and some of us have been complicit in perpetuating and I, like I'll say for myself, I have too, like I'm sure that I have engaged in microaggressions and complicity in ways that I haven't even been able to understand. And part of the work is examining that behavior, right? Mm -hmm. But to rebuild it, it it's going to take all of us. Yes. It's all together, right? I want to thank everyone for listening to me. And me. And if you have any burning questions or you want to gently call us in, our inbox is open. You can email us at listen to, that's the number two, me podcast at gmail.com, or you can DM us on social media. You can follow us on social media at listen to, that's the number two, me podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like what you hear, let us know by rating this podcast and subscribing.
And as always, the music in this episode is graciously provided by audionautics.com. Bye. Bye.